as we continue on in our study of 2 Kings, we are at the very end. Not the last one, but the very close to that. Tonight, we're going to talk about the destruction of Jerusalem. And it's not just the destruction of Jerusalem, but it's also the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. If you remember back in 1 Kings chapter 7, when Solomon was building the temple, all of the details, in fact, we'll go through some of the details, and the great christening of the temple was after he prayed, and then the, the, the glory of the Lord came upon the temple. And that was the highlight of Israel, is that God, their God, the only God, was with them. And they could meet with God in the Holy of Holies through the ministry of the high priest, specifically once a year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Well, that's all gone because they basically are taking all of the pieces of the temple, cutting them up, breaking them all up with all of the meaning, with all of the analogy that refers to the Lord Jesus Christ. And they're hauling them off to Babylon. Well, with that, I invite you to turn to 2 Kings chapter 25. We're only going to be covering verses 13 through 21. We will be in 1 Kings tonight a little. We will also be in Jeremiah 52 a little because Jeremiah gives pretty close to the same account of the destruction of Jerusalem. But before we begin, let's just bow in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. It's great truths and promises, but even it's great warnings Father, we see these examples in the scripture. They are to give us wisdom. Father, we, our heart breaks too as we go through this, thinking of your presence with Israel. And yet, Lord, there is a sense in which a true relationship is not through a building, but through a person, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you teach us that this evening? And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so this evening, let's see, did I, okay, hang on a second here, I've got the wrong one loaded. We've got a lot of, I'm not sure exactly how that happened. All right, so we have a glitch here, uh, but this is live, this is what happens, live streaming. All right, so I, I do have a lot of uh, pictures on the PowerPoint, and so we've got to, uh, I want to get that loaded real quick. Technology, it is, it, it conforms us to Christ, does it not? All things work together for good. All right, so let's try it again.
Okay. That's not going to work. Bear with me, if you would. I'm learning grace and humility at the moment, which is a good thing to learn. Okay, that didn't work. All right. Okay. If this doesn't work, then I'll just do a good job of describing the pictures. <laughs> All right, here we go. We've got it. Hmm. No, we don't. All right. Well, I'm going to have to let it go. Um, I am not sure what the problem is, but that's all right. Okay, I will give you pictures in words. All right, well, as we talk about the destruction of Jerusalem, let's first do a review. And where, how did we get here? <laughs> Well, going through all the first and second kings. But last week, we talked about Lachish and Azekah. They were the last two fortifications that Nebuchadnezzar had to go through in order to come and attack Jerusalem. And, of course, they spent several years attacking and building a, a ramp there in Jerusalem. But they had to take care of Azekah and Lachish. And Lachish has some artifacts that they found where a letter is written. It said, we can't see Azekah. They're gone. We're the last ones. And of course, after they were conquered, uh, then it wasn't long after before Jerusalem was conquered. What happened? Well, in the years that they were around them, this is the Babylonians, they were around 
the fortified wall of Jerusalem. You know, they'd already taken care of the water problem inside Jerusalem with Hezekiah's tunnel, so they had all the water that they needed. But after about two years, they were running out of food, and it says that a famine came in, and, and the people were starving. The people uh, could not do anything. And about that time, uh, Nebuchadnezzar broke through the wall and rampaged the city. And those who resisted were killed. Those who surrendered got to go to Babylon and, and survive. But he also attacked not only the city and burned the buildings and burned the king's house, but he also burned the temple and they removed many of the valuables which we're going to talk about tonight. Zedekiah, he took off. When he saw that they broke through, him and a whole bunch of brave warriors took off. When the Babylonians realized he was not there, they went after him and the brave soldiers left him. They apprehended Zedekiah. Not only did they capture him, but they took him into captivity with his sons. And right before they gouged out the eyes of Zedekiah, they killed his sons in front of him. And then they gouged his eyes out. The horrific meaning is the last thing that he saw with his eyes was the death of his sons. Well, then the captain of Nebuchadnezzar's army came to Jerusalem and began to take care of the destruction, burning down Jerusalem, breaking down the walls, and then finally carrying the, the remaining people into exile. And that's about where we are. As the people are getting ready to go into exile, what else are they doing? Well, they're going in the temple, and the temple has a lot of gold. You remember in 1 Kings, we talked about all of the gold uh, that was there and the bronze and all of these. And that's what they were taking. They won. Spoils go to the victor. The only thing is, is that it was the house of the Lord. And it's a sad moment in Jewish history. I'd like to look at, if we could, I'd like to look at these um, items that are removed. I'd like to go back and also refer to 1 Kings when it was being made, when these artifacts and these uh, furniture and the uh, all of these uh, vessels were being made. We see that in detail. And all of that beauty, all of that craftsmanship is now being sawed off so that they can carry it. And there's so much of it that they can't even weigh it. They don't even know how much it is. There was really no type of measurement in those days to measure it all. And so the scripture says it was immeasurable. Well, I'd like to then look, first of all, at 2 Kings chapter 25, verse 13. And it goes from taking them into captivity to verse 13. Now the bronze pillars which were in the house of the Lord and the stands and the bronze sea which were in the house of the Lord, 
the Chaldeans broke in pieces and carried the bronze to Babylon. Now, I wish I had the pictures to show you this evening, but that's all right. Now, do you remember when they were building and making the temple there? Uh, they did the holy place and then the holy of holies. They also did the courtyard. But right in front of the temple, they had these two extremely large pillars. In fact, not only were these there into the entrance into the temple, but they gave names to each of these pillars. So what I'd like to do now is I'd like to go back to 1 Kings chapter 7, and I'd like to look at some of these. I'd like to look at the dimensions of these. And then we'll be able to understand why the Babylonians had to cut them into pieces in order to transport them. So let's first go to 1 Kings chapter 7. We want to look at verse 15. All right, so where are we? We're at the very beginning. You remember it's David and then Solomon and then after Solomon, his son, Rehoboam, is part of the division of Israel. But we're before that. This is the great moment. This is the great moment when the presence of God comes there at this temple that God had told David, you can't build, but your son must build it. And this is what we have. And it says, after forming all of these other uh, structures, Come, we come to this, and it says, and he fashioned the two pillars of bronze. They were huge pillars. 18 cubits was the height of one pillar. That is 27 feet in English calculation. So it was 18 cubits high, meaning it was 27 feet. Each pillar was 27 feet. And we're going to look at the detail if you remember any of this. And then what it says was that a line of 12 cubits measured the circumference of both. So if you were to take a tape measure and go around these round pillars, you would measure 12 cubits, which would be 18 feet. So it's 27 feet high, and it's 18 feet in circumference. And it is bronze, and so it's going to be heavy. But it's going to be heavy. It is, they are hollow. They almost have to be hollow. It would be almost impossible to position them if they weren't hollow. But they are very, very thick. Very, very thick, and they are made of bronze. Now... On top of these pillars, they weren't just pillars, but they were highly uh, decorative. And that's what I wanted to show you in the pictures, but I, I will try to paint a picture for you. On top of this pillar was what they call a capital. A capital is an upper member on this, uh, sometimes decorative, 
but it's on top of the pillar. Let me just read what I have here. In architecture, capitals are the upper members, sometimes rounded, on top of a column. The capitals on the pillars were bowl-shaped. The capitals on the pillars were made of bronze and set on top of the pillars. The height of each capital was five cubits. That's seven feet, seven and a half feet. So now we're adding to this. This is an incredible structure. And in a way, after the destruction of Jerusalem, the Babylonians couldn't help but see this, could help but see these pillars that were in front of the door. As we do go through tonight's lesson and we talk about some of these uh, utensils and pieces and furniture of the temple, we see that they were highly decorative, that they were beautiful. There's imagery in them. But it's the idea that this needs to be the most magnificent building because God's presence will be here. Uh, we think of worship. We think of our own worship when we come here. Do we come thinking of the Lord's attributes and the Lord's beauty? And we want to give him our full attention in our worship. We want to give him our full attention because this is extremely important. Now, as believers, we don't have to come to this building to worship the Lord. But we do have to gather together to worship the Lord, and we do so in this building. And so it's the idea that we do the same thing, only we didn't have to go to a temple. We came through Christ for eternal life. And we have the true spiritual understanding of all of this. But you see these pictures with all of this, and it's highly decorative. And that's what I want to talk about now. It's highly decorative. So it's not just a pillar and not just uh, a bronze capital on the top. We're going to see here in uh, these next verses, verses 17 and following, we're going to see how decorative they were. Look at verse 17. So we're still in 1 Kings chapter 7, verse 17. It says, There were nets of networks and twisted threads of chain work. For the capitals, which were on the top of the pillars, seven for the one capital and seven for the other capital. So the netting that we're thinking about, it's probably, it, it probably makes diamond shapes. One, going one, one set going one direction, another set going another. Let me read what we have here. On the capitals were some sort of nets of network and twisted threads of chain work, okay? So we're talking about chain, but it's not just throwing a chain up there like, you're, like you know, the, the chains that you put on your tires when you're stuck. Well, I guess you should have them on before you get stuck, right? This is highly decorative. It is difficult to know if the chain work was part of the netting or if they were separate designs. So we don't have them that we can see what they were, but we're trying to figure out. And by the way, those pictures I were going to show you, that was just an artist's rendition. He may have been wrong, so maybe this is good. Maybe this is good that we're not looking at those pictures. It states that there were seven pieces of chain work for each capital, 
and it states that there were two rows around one network to cover the capitals. Perhaps the chain work also became the crisscross netting around the capital. So if you will, it was a, it was a crisscross design. And so now we're starting to see some of its beauty. And on top of all of this that we're going to see, we're going to see pomegranates. If, if you'll take notice on following here, let's, let's look at verse 18 and we'll read through this. So he made the pillars and then two rows around on one network to cover the capitals, which were on the top of the pomegranates. And he did so for the other capital. So now we're having pictures of fruit there. Um, highly decorative. And when you think of a pomegranate, you know what color it is, right? Because you can even find pomegranates in, in grocery stores, even in Gillette, Wyoming. They're red. They're a bright red color. Um, we, we see this even uh, around our own times of decorations or holidays, and we'll have all of the colors out, and, and it, it becomes decorative. Well, that's what this was. Uh, all, uh, now, the color perhaps wasn't so much there as it was these sculptures of it in the bronze. It's a fantastic craftsmanship. It's one of those things where you're walking by and you have to stop and you think, oh my word, who did that? And then, you know, I always think about how much time does that take to do that? Um, you know, I, I, I can do a few things, a little bit of leather work and make some designs, but I, I'm not super patient. You know, I'm, 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 I'm going to make it work and it can have a little design on it. Uh, but but to, to do some of the work that we see here, uh, it's just incredible. By the way, the, the, all of this was uh, handcrafted by a man by the name of Hiram. And we find out from Hiram that, you know, God really gifted him in the works of working with bronze and gold and silver, all the things that go into the temple. And there were so many things even inside the holy place that were decorative, uh, cherubim were in there on the walls and it's just incredible but we're outside now we're talking about outside this is what the Babylonians would have saw and said hey we got to get those well the network of chains it's above these decorative pomegranates and the description of the pomegranates was that they totaled 200 in rows around both capitals. 200, I'm thinking, how about four? You know, one in each direction, north, south, east, and west. You know, everybody could see it. Well, you have all of these pomegranates. So imagine how each one must have, how long each one must have taken. And this is what the Babylonians are putting their hands upon and then going to tear it into pieces. Now, what's interesting is that when we look at pomegranates in the scriptures, there's a couple of things to know. First of all, the, the priests themselves had pomegranates on their robes when they went in to do the work of the Lord. Now, 
One reason is, is because it was decorative. Even the priest's robe was decorative. By the way, uh, even his breastplate was decorative. It had meaning, but it, it, had, uh, it was decorative. Uh, so, so we see this. We see this then pomegranates with, with, as you go into the holy place, and then pomegranates on the robe. And we see pomegranates in other places too. Basically, it can be a symbol for joy, for fertility or growth, and even eternal life. And perhaps that's what it meant with all of those with all of those pomegranates around. I mean, you, you can't hardly count them because uh, they just keep going and keep going. It is interesting, though, because uh, the book of Joel does talk about pomegranates. And this is a time in the book of Joel when he's talking about a very present chastening of the Lord, uh, a day of the Lord, not the day of the Lord, but a day of the Lord. And it says this, Be ashamed, O farmers, wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field is destroyed. Now, this, this isn't talking about where we're at in the captivity, but it can picture it. And then he says in verse 12, The vine dries up and the fig tree fails. The pomegranate, the palm also, and the apple tree. All the trees of the field dry up. Indeed, here you go, rejoicing dries up from the sons of men. So as you're going into the holy place, you see pomegranates, which is joy, the joy of the Lord. And now the joy of the Lord is being removed from Jerusalem and going to Babylon because of their sin. But we're not done. There's also on the very top of these capitals, lilies, a lily design. Now, there's lots of different types of lilies and different types of shapes, so we're not exactly sure what they all look like. But lilies are uh, very decorative. Everybody loves lilies. Look at verse 19. So 1 Kings chapter 7, verse 19. It says the capitals which were on the top of the pillars in the porch were of lily design. They were four cubits. Four cubits is six feet. This is immense. This is incredible. Now the lily, as you know, is a colorful flower and can be various colors. Uh, in the hyacinth or the tulip family. Um, lilies are mentioned in scripture several times. Uh, it's mentioned in the Song of Solomon. Uh, it, it's when, when Solomon was describing his bride-to-be, she didn't think that she was lovely. And he said, oh, you're lovely. You're the lily of the valley. In other words, in a plain valley, here are these beautiful lilies. And in a sense, here among all of these other women, this is what you are to me. You are my choice. And husbands, this is exactly what we ought to think about our wives as the lily of the valley. 
And it's a symbol of beauty, uh, decoration, and purity. In fact, even Jesus mentions the lilies, does he not? Now, he's applying this. He says, and why are you worried? Why are you worried about your clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. And they do not toil, nor do they spin. They're not worked up and agitated. And yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory was not clothed like one of these. So that's the beauty of the lily. And it's appropriately at the entrance into the holy place. You know, we do see a beauty in the character of God. It is the most beautiful character because it's all of his attributes. We ought to love them. We ought to appreciate them. We ought to seek after them. And this is what we find in just that bronze pillar. There were two of them. Now, I mentioned in our intro that we see that they gave names to both of the pillars. Um, you know, uh, I, don't, I don't think this was meant kind of like tongue-in-cheek. I think this, this was meant to give some sort of lesson. Uh, sometimes we, we name things because of how difficult it is. Uh, you know, all, all kinds of things we give names to, but these were given names specifically. One name was Jachin, or Jachin, and the other was Boaz. Why? Why were these names given? Well, one writes, the pillar placed on the right, or the south side of the entrance to the portico, was named Jachin. The other, on the left or north side, was Boaz. They suggest appropriately that these names reflect the relationship of God and king. Jachin means he established. He established. God established. God establishes the king. We're in the book of Kings. We're following the line that will eventually go to the Messiah. So it's the Lord who establishes. And of course, many of these kings, he was very disappointed that they were established. And we think of Jeconiah and the curse of Jeconiah. We think of Manasseh, the guy that was the last straw that broke the camel's back. But he's re referring to, he established, referring to the initiative of God. And of course, God is not just thinking of the kings, not just thinking of David, although David has a special place in God's heart, but ultimately the true David, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Boaz means by him he is mighty. So we have on the one hand, it's God who establishes, and on the other hand, by that establishment and that power, the king is mighty. What we see here is, some have said, it's very likely that there's a reference here to the Davidic kingdom. Rightly so. This all happened in the book of Kings, right? This is all about David and the Davidic covenant. It is Jesus Christ who is going to be the only one who can fulfill it completely by being on the throne of David forever. And so it recalls the promises given 
to David in the Davidic covenant. That they perpetually will worship God and they will have uh, someone from David's line that will sit on the throne of David forever. Uh, some people also see the idea of strength and stability of God's promises. And so we certainly, certainly see that as well. So these are the two huge pillars. And I wonder how long it took them to dissemble this and, and remove this. Now, what about inside the temple? We're going to talk about inside the temple. And let's also remember that there was valuable items that were taken in the other two deportations. How many times was Judah deported to Babylon? Three. Each time they took individuals, each time they took treasures and spoils, and each time Judah did not learn. And now this is the last and the final. It's gone. They're taking everything. They're taking everything that's worth anything. So there in front of the holy place are these incredible pillars. But there's other things that are huge and humongous and made of bronze. Do you remember when we talked about the bronze sea? We're not talking about water in the ocean, but we're talking about water in this incredible, huge bowl. And in this huge bowl, we're going to see how large it is, in this huge bowl is contained water. This is right in with the uh, temple area. And the water is going to be used for cleansing of the priests. The water is going to be used in cleansing of some of the sacrifices. And we're going to see this. And it was this huge, huge uh, uh, vat that held water. So if you would, if you're still in 1 Kings 7, let's drop down to verse 23. In verse 23... It said, now this is, this is when Solomon is having Hiram do all this. You know, uh, I, I think when he was applying for the job, Hiram came, and I think he might have brought some of his work. And when Solomon saw how good it was, he turned to one of his officials and said, Hiram. Okay, so anyway, in verse 23, it says, now he, that would be Hiram, he made the sea, and that's what it's called, the sea of cast metal, 10 cubits from brim to brim, circular in form, and its height was 5 cubits and 30 cubits in circumference. So it was large, and it says it was 10 cubits from brim to brim, that's 15 feet. Its height was five cubits or seven and a half feet. That's how huge it was. And its circumference was 30 cubits or 45 feet. That's a lot of water. Well, you know, in Israel, you, you need a lot of water because you have a lot of days where you don't get water. And so one of the things when you go over to Israel, you're, you're going to see these things that are wells and man-made wells. 
And it's not the idea that they dug down through the ground and now you got to crank the pump to get the water out of the ground. They made a huge opening and sealed the opening so that when it rains, they collect all of that water and also to the water that comes in from the Kidron Valley from Hezekiah's uh, tunnel as well. But that's how incredibly big this was. Now, verse 24, you remember? Under its brim, gourds. Here we go, more decorative. Do we have to really decorate this? Yeah, yeah. This is all a part of God's uh, plan with the temple. Under its brim, gourds went around encircling it 10 to a cubit, completely surrounding the sea. And the gourds were in two rows, cast with the rest. Verse 25, it stood on 12 oxen. So now here's these brass oxen that have to hold up this thing. And there was 12 of them, three of them facing north, three facing west, three facing south, and three facing east. And the sea was set on top of them, and all their rear parts turned inward. So the, the, the face and the head of the oxen are facing out. Let's just stop here for a moment. As we're looking at uh, all of this, we have these 12 sculptured bulls, all right? And three oxen were grouped together. Now, what, what's the idea of oxen? Well, oxen are animals of burden and often depict service. We know that it is the priests uh, and the Levites that do temple service. We know that this is what this is talking about. So the burden of the spirituality of Israel was on the shoulders of the priests. Christ being the ultimate priest, is he not? By the way, it says in Scripture that we as believers, we are priests. We are priests representing God. Well, it's very likely that the 12 oxen would represent 12 what? 12 tribes of Israel who were similarly arrayed around the tabernacle as they set out on their journey in the wilderness. So we, we see all of this here. Uh, by the way, all of this has imagery. All, God never wastes anything. Every, everything he does has a lesson behind it, has a point to it, and it usually points to the Lord Jesus Christ. All of this is being torn apart. All of this is going to Babylon. Now, I want to talk about the thickness of it. It's, it's very thick. Verse 26 says, It was a hand breadth thick, and its brim was made like a brim of a cup as a lily blossom. It could hold 2,000 baths. Now, this does not suggest that people take a bath in this, but a bath is a, a measurement, a type of measurement when it comes to water. But first of all, the hand breath. So depending on a man's hand, I guess the average was a measurement of four fingers across the palm. 
and it's equivalent to three to four inches, maybe even a little more. So that's the thickness of it. Can you, can you imagine having to work with something like that? Now, a bath was a measure of water. It was a unit of measurement equivalent to approximately six gallons. So if you have 2,000 baths of measurement, you could be talking about 11,000 gallons, possibly 11,000 gallons of water. And this basin served as a reservoir in the temple courtyard. Uh, it was located in the courtyard on the south side of the temple and provided priest water to wash themselves. And this is speaking of ceremonial washing, okay? That's what this is talking about. Now, here's the deal. How there were so many priests going around the courtyard, you'd have to walk back and forth all the time to get the water. So they also made stands, small, smaller versions of this, of, of, of this, and they were on stands, and there was 10 of them. And these, they would be mobile, uh, mobile vats, if you will, mobile, so that they put the water in and it could be moved around the courtyard. Uh, we see this in both uh, verse 13 and 16 in our text in 2 Kings. Um, we'll take a look at that in a moment. But look at verses 27 through 39 in our text of 1 Kings. So this is when it was being made. Verse 27, Then he made the ten stands of bronze. The length of each stand was four cubits, and its width four cubits, and its height three cubits. So these weren't small either. What, but what I'm amazed at is if you want to see design, you're going to see a lot of design here. It's going to go to verse 39. It says, this was the design of the stands. They had borders, even borders between the frames. And on the borders which were between the frames were lions, oxen, and cherubim. This is on, this is on the cart. This is just on the cart. And look at all of the decoration. And on the frames, there was a pedestal above. And beneath the lions and the oxen were wreaths of hanging work. Wow. Now, as we're thinking about this, as we're thinking about this portable uh, collection of water, uh, we, we think about what, what's the idea of lions? Well, lions can mean strength, but lions can also mean authority. Uh, we see authority with kings and sculptures and many of the far eastern uh, ancient kings. They had, they'd have the lions there, uh, the king, of the king of the jungle, if you will. So there's royalty and authority. Oxen, strength. Uh, service, but strength. And then cherubim were angels angelic beings who you are uh, bringing into context that this is a heavenly, heavenly picture here. That God is in heaven, but for the moment, he meets with man in the holy of holies. 
there above the Ark of the Covenant as blood is sprinkled on the mercy seat where a holy God and sinful man can meet. So heaven has come down. And of course, the cherubim would represent heavenly beings. Now, what was the purpose of all of this? Well, the sea, that's the big one, together with the 10 movable basins, served as the laver in the tabernacle for ceremonial cleansing. We are informed that the sea was used by the priests for their washing, while the basins were used for the rinsing of the burnt offerings. What is the meaning? Well, the ceremonial stipulations for the priesthood with regard to the cleansing required in connection with their ministry and approach to God were intended to teach a truth that transcends mere ritualism, namely that he who would approach God and serve him needs to be cleansed from the pollution of the world. Very interesting quote there. In order to approach God, we need to be clean and cleansed. We're not. We're not. In and of ourselves, we're sinners. God cannot look upon sin. And that's where it points to the Lord Jesus Christ who cleans us, who cleans us with his blood, uh, the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. He who is clean is clean all over, Jesus told Peter. And it's the idea that before we can do anything, we have to have a relationship with him, which already means we're beyond ritual. So even though there is ritual here and ritualistic, it was never intended to be ritual, only ritual. And that's part of the problem, that it was mere ritual. And I dare say, even as believers today, as we come to church uh, to gather together, to hear the word of God, to fellowship with believers, to worship the Lord, oh, God forbid that it should ever become ritualistic. Now, I'm glad we get in the habit of coming. I'm good with that, you know? I'm happy with that. But each time we meet, it ought to be in fresh preparation before what the Lord has for us that day from his word and prayer and fellowship. And it ought to be uh, something that I grow on. Like each time we come together, it, we ought to be growing more. We ought to be overcoming more. We ought to be becoming more like Christ. And it's interesting that this author here from the Expositor's Commentary, he talks about that this, this was intended to transcend ritualism. But it does show that we have to be clean to approach the Lord. And of course, even as believers, we are clean. Positionally, we are clean. But what about when we sin? Well, we don't lose our salvation, but 1 John 1.9 is the principle that we apply. If we confess our sin as believers, we're not getting saved again. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we don't lose our relationship, but our fellowship is restored. We are cleansed from sin. And by the way, again, look at all of the analogies that are here in the temple, pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ, pointing to salvation, pointing to uh, the believer. It's being destroyed. It's all going to go. 
Well, we move now from the, the stands and we now move into the idea of going into the temple and taking the temple utensils and furniture and taking them to Babylon. You remember some time ago in one of the deportations, it says they took some of the gold. And we went then to Daniel, and in Daniel, uh, the writing on the wall was because the evil king was getting drunk and said, hey, let's drink out of the utensils and the cups that we got from Jerusalem, from the Lord's temple there. Let's celebrate our God and victory over that. And so they got them out. They all began drinking. And of course, then comes the writing on the wall, which said, you have been measured, you have been tested, you have been weighed, and you have been found wanting. His destruction came that night. Well, let's now turn back to 2 Kings chapter 25. So in 2 Kings chapter 25, we just read about the bronze pillars, uh, the stands, and the bronze sea that were in the house of the Lord. The Chaldeans broke them into pieces and carried the bronze to Babylon. And so that's quite impressive. Um, quickly drop down to verse 16, talking about the pillars. Verse 16, now we're in 2 Kings 25. Verse 16 says, the two pillars, the one sea and the stands which Solomon had made for the house of the Lord, the bronze of all these vessels was beyond weight. They couldn't even weigh it. They didn't even have an instrument to weigh it. I mean, I imagine they could kind of say, well, this is what we think, but there was really no way to, to weigh it. But going to verse 14, after we're moving away from the pillars, it says, they took away the pots, the shovels, the snuffers, the spoons, and all the bronze vessels which were used in temple service. So these are all things that were there. Some of them were bronze, and we're going to see that some of the things, the utensils that are there, were utensil, uh, utensils of gold. They took it. Whatever was valuable, it's ours. We conquered. We conquered this area. In fact, uh, the, the area right now of the Babylonian Empire uh, reaches just about to Egypt. Uh, it, as far as east, it dips into a little bit of Persia. It goes up north, way beyond Israel, uh, past Carchemish, where the battle was. And so the Babylonian Empire was pretty huge at that time. And it's all his. It's all his. And you remember the king was told, Zedekiah was told, you need to surrender to him. Of course, they had to pay taxes to him. But because they rebelled, God took Zedekiah out of the way. And now Nebuchadnezzar is helping himself to whatever is there. Verse 15, it says, The captain of the guard also took away 
the fire pans and the basins, what was fine gold and what was fine silver. So some of these things we find out from kings that they were indeed made of gold. Um, in fact, let's go back to 1 Kings for just a moment. In 1 Kings chapter 7, verse 48, this is what it says. 1 Kings 7, 48, Solomon made all the furniture which was in the house of the Lord, the golden altar, and that would be the incense altar, and the golden table on which was the bread of the presence. So this is where the showbread would be put there. And these were made of gold and uh, quite impressive. And then verse 49, and the lampstands, five on the right side and five on the left in front of the inner sanctuary of pure gold and the flowers and the lamps and the tongues of gold. All of this was gold and they're in there helping themselves. And verse 50, and the cups and the snuffers, those things that put out the candles and the bowls and the spoons and the fire pans of pure gold. Oh, and the hinges, both of the doors of the inner house, the most holy place, and for the doors of the house, that is, of the nave of gold. So these things were made of gold too. Now, it is interesting, one of the things that we don't read about is what about the Ark of the Covenant? Nothing is mentioned anywhere about it. Well, when we were going through the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah knew what was coming. And one of the possibilities is that Jeremiah had the priests move the Ark of the Covenant somewhere and hide it somewhere. It, it is... Um, it is a, a, a nice idea to think about that it's, it was placed underneath Jerusalem. Now, underneath Jerusalem, just full of all kinds of tunnels and, and places like that. So no one knows for sure. But what was interesting was when we went to Israel, that first night we ended up in the uh, church of the sepulcher. And here came the, secure, the security over to us told us that he that they're going to close shortly but this is the second time he's telling us now and he says follow me and we're like we are in trouble great my first night in Israel and I'm gonna have to call Dave and tell him Dave you got to get me out of jail well this man said you guys are Christians aren't you and we said yes and and he asked if we were pastors and we said yes he said, I want to show you something. And he took us to a room where the public is not allowed. And there uh, in this room was a, an iron gate that was locked. But you could see in it a little bit. And it was leading to some of the tunnels underneath Jerusalem. Now, <laughs> I don't know. You know, I'm not saying that that was the tunnel that leads to the Ark of the Covenant. But it gave some validity to it that that, that could have been the case. Anyway... 
we don't find that in all of these pieces of furniture, but we find everything else, um, even the hinges um, for the doors, uh, the nave, all of those had gold. And now it's going to Babylon. And as we look and turn back to 2 Kings again, 2 Kings 25, 16, um, all of these again, all of these vessels were beyond weight. In other words, they couldn't weigh them. Uh, verse 17 uh, talks about the pillar again. The height of the pillar was 18 cubits, and a bronze capital was on it. The height of the capital was three cubits with a network of pomegranates uh, on the capital, all around, all of bronze, and the second pillar was like these with the network. Well, it's at this point then there's a shift. Now that they got all of the spoils, now they're going to take care of those individuals who they don't think are going to be on the same page over in Babylon. We look at verses 18 through 21 of 2 Kings, and we're going to find out that the priests and the officials will be killed. Again, why? Well, you know, that kind of was the thing in that day. Um, these were people who were influential, whether good or bad. We know some of the priests were not good. We know some of the prophets were not good. But they were influential. And the Babylonians knew that they were influential and said, we don't want whatever kind of influence you're selling in Babylon. And of course, one would think, that maybe these were true priests, true officials. They were going to keep the people spiritually growing, but maybe even to revolt, and they didn't want that. So we pick it up in verse 18. It says, And then the captain of the guard took Sariah, the chief priest, and Zephaniah, the second priest, with the three officers of the temple. So they were apprehended. Uh, again, these are a threat. Now, the fellow there, Sariah, uh, we believe that he was an ancestor of Ezra. Ezra, not his ancestor, but Ezra looking back to Sariah as one of his ancestors. Uh, Ezra 7.1 uh, mentions his name. Then look at verse 19. He's going to go after the officials and the advisors. From the city, he took one official who was overseer of the men of war, five of the king's advisors who were found in the city, and the scribe of the captain of the army who mustered the people of the land. That means he's the one that collects them. He's the one that gets them together. He's mustering all the men for a battle. We don't want him in Babylon. And 60 men of the people of the land who were found in the city. So they collected them all. They collected them all. And what did they do? Well, they took them to a place where Nebuchadnezzar was. Because the captain of the army didn't really have the authority to do anything with them, so he's going to bring them before Nebuchadnezzar. Probably has a good idea what's going to happen. Maybe, maybe these priests and officials did too, but that would be an occasion for prayer. <laughs> okay. Lord, Spare me, Lord. You know, David prayed that. Um, also, Daniel prayed that. 
Well, we find out here in verse 20, it says, Nebuzaradan, that's the captain of the guard, took them and brought them to the king of Babylon at Riblah. So this is where he was, and this is where his temporary headquarters were. Verse 21, then the king of Babylon struck them down and put them to death in the land of Hamath. And I want you to listen to this last phrase. It's not the end of the book, but I want you to listen to this, this phrase. All that's gone on, all of the building of the ramp, all of the fighting, all of the death, all of the apprehension, all of the fires, um, all of the ransacking of the temple. So Judah was led away into exile from its land. Wow. Sad, sad words. Well, I do have one other comment, and that is um, a comment from Jeremiah chapter 52. Would you turn there? So again, Jeremiah is giving almost verbatim the same account. Uh, he does add certain things, which Second Kings does not, and sometimes vice versa. You remember we said that there were three, three deportations. When Nebuchadnezzar first came in, there was a deportation because Israel was not submitting. Judah, I mean, Israel was gone. Judah was not submitting, and he came and he took a lot of people and he took treasures. One of the people that he took was Daniel, and Daniel went there in Babylon. Then there was a second deportation because they still hadn't learned their lesson, and so more people were taken and more treasures. And then finally, this third deportation was the last. And in Jeremiah 52, beginning in verse 28, it says, these are the people who Nebuchadnezzar carried away into exile. In the seventh year, 3,023 Jews. In the 18th year, second deportation of Nebuchadnezzar, 832 persons from Jerusalem. And verse 30, in the 23rd year, that's now, of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried into exile 745 Jewish people. There were 4,600 persons in all. This is all of them now. Now, there are a few who are left. They're the poor. They're the helpless. They're not going to be able to further the Babylonian Empire, so they don't want them. And they said, tell you what, stick around here. Grow as much agriculture as you want, and we'll come by to collect all of your produce. Uh, but we'll let you live. We'll let you live here. This is not the end of the book of 2 Kings, but it, it is the end of what we've been coming to the whole time. God forewarning them, if you do not follow me, if you consistently turn away from me, I will take you out of the promised land. And the temple will be destroyed. Two quick applications here. You know, God certainly could not be pleased with the destruction of the temple. Although he's sovereign, he not only knew it was going to happen, he allowed it to happen, and Nebuchadnezzar was his instrument. This was discipline upon his people. 
But you think about all of the beauty of the temple. And, and by the way, when they came back from exile and they rebuilt the temple, it was not up to the standard and the beauty of, the, of Solomon's temple, the first building of it. How displeased God is by thinking of his people. You know, his people are a temple. We're the temple of the Lord, it says in scripture. We're his workmanship. And all of that beautiful workmanship on the temple there in Jerusalem is the same workmanship that God himself is literally doing to his people. First with Israel. And now they are marred. It reminds us of us as believers. We are his. We are not our own. Even though we live in America. Even though we're Americans. Even though we're in Wyoming. We are not our own. We are the Lord's. And it says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, that we are his workmanship. It says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. And so for us, let us not mar the temple of the Lord outwardly or inwardly. Let us walk in such a way that God is pleased with us and that we are accomplishing the good works and I think we can say the good works are ministry it's a ministry to share the gospel it's a ministry to encourage another brother it's a ministry to pray and that's what we are involved in but how sad is this moment and I, I think even the Jewish people uh, see how terrible this is it's, it's, too, it's too late too much too little too late but the other thing is, in thinking of the temple, every part of that temple pointed to Christ. We think of the golden lampstands that were there that would light up the holy place so that the priest could see what they were doing. Reminds us of Christ who said he was the light of the world. I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. How about the showbread on the table? The showbread of the presence of the Lord. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And so we see his picture there. We see pictures all over, and we could just do an entire study on that. How about the veil that was in the temple? The veil. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 20 says, By a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh. So the veil would not let anyone into the Holy of Holies except the high priest only once a year on the day of Yom Kippur and he had to do everything right or he himself was going to die. But when Christ died on the cross, it says that the veil was rent in two. The way is open now. The way to God is open through Christ. And that's what Jesus said. I am the way and the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. 
And that may sound offensive. That may sound as if we're, we're not giving respect to any other religion. Well, it's the word of God. And there really only is one way. And that's through the Lord Jesus Christ. The temple was showing us that. You had to go through and go past Joachim and Boaz in order to go into the holy place. Meaning God has established it. And God has established it so that his king who will sit on his throne forever will be mighty, the Lord Jesus Christ. And this temple, the physical temple, was destroyed. So there's an inner meaning which could be the displeasure of God. But as we as believers, we are to be the light of the world through Christ. Christ is the light of the world, and we let our light so shine men may see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. And we need to give out the bread of life that people will come to Christ. And we need to let people know it doesn't matter. We need to let them know there is only one way. And it's not to say, well, we're so prideful, we're the only ones that have the only way. Well, we are. But if this wasn't right and there was another way, we should go after it. And you know what? Many of us have. Many of us have gone the other way and not found the truth until we found Christ. And that's our message. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. There is no other. And no man, not some, not one, no man comes to the Father but through him. That's the Lord Jesus Christ who said that. So may we be faithful. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this evening. We thank you for your word. What a day of infamy in Jerusalem, Lord. Even today, Lord, the Temple Mount is not under the possession of the Jewish people. Father, it seems as if they continually are under the discipline of you. Father, they have not come to Christ. Some have but not all have, not as a nation they have not, but someday they will. They are your workmanship. And just as you restored the temple after the exile, so you will restore your people. But thank you for letting us become some of your people, Lord. Even us Gentiles, thank you for bringing us in. May we not only show the light of the Lord Jesus Christ, but we, may we, even as it says in Scripture, bring about a jealousy to the Jewish people that would attract them to the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.